Father, we pray that uh, this short book would be compelling to us this morning. Might its shortness not distract us from the truth that it bears and the significance of its message. And might the significance of this message transform us so that the way we worship, the way we go with the gospel, the way we send with the gospel, and how we support those who are sent might be compelling to us. Oh, Father, change us by this word. Sanctify us by this word. And we desire our sanctification and we desire our transformation so that it will be clear that Christ is exalted among us and that that others in seeing our transformation would point to Christ and be pointed to Christ as the means of our transformation. And so, Father, we commend our time of worship around this word to you, asking for your guidance and your instruction and your transformation. In Christ's name, amen. It has been suggested on many occasions that the book of Acts is perhaps the single most a significant or best manual for missions that the church has. We learn a tremendous amount of, of uh, God's perspective towards missions as we read the book of Acts. But many of the principles that we glean from Acts are also in Third John, except now in shortened form. We might say that if Acts is the mission manual then 3 John is the synopsis of that manual. If, if Acts is the novel, then 3 John is the short story. How will we summarize our commitment to missions? What will we say about missions? As we think about missions, as we come to this text, and as we summarize where we have been over the last two weeks, now the third week, as we think about missions, what, what do we believe about missions, and what are we trying to accomplish in missions. Well, simply said, the goal of Grace Bible Church Missions is to cultivate a network of missionaries that will expand our global involvement and see people from all the nations trust Christ, love Christ, and live for Christ's glory. As simply said, our goal is to be involved in taking the gospel to the nations so those who don't know Christ will come to trust in Christ as their Savior. As we've been thinking about missions over the last few weeks, we've asked and answered four questions about the missionary process. First of all, we've answered the question, what is missions? Secondly, why is missions important? Thirdly, what are Grace Bible Church's priorities in missions? What kind of mission ventures are we particularly interested in? And then thirdly, what are the responsibility, or fourthly, what are the responsibilities of missionaries? And this morning we want to address one final question about missions. We've looked at what missions is, what the responsibility of the missionaries are, what our priorities are as we think about missions, and now we want to ask the question, what are our, what are our responsibilities in missions? What should we be involved in doing and accomplishing for the mission venture of Christ? What are our commitments to missions and missionaries? And this letter, 3 John, was really a, a, um, a, a, a missionary letter. It's an affirmation of what missions is. In fact, I was talking this week with someone who works for a mission agency, and we were talking about missions. And he, even before I had a chance to say it, he said, I've been so struck by 3 John. Who put that letter in there, and how did I miss what was in that letter? It's, it's, it's almost like I've read this, this letter many times and not seen the mission imperative. And then it just unfolds and we understand this is all about missions. And so from, from this letter, we're going to see this morning six commitments that we need to make uh, to, the pro, to the process of missions. Six commitments to our mission venture. Now you'll notice that this is a letter. It's written by John. He identifies himself simply as the elder. And it's written to an individual, a man named Gaius. Now we don't know for certain who Gaius was. The, part of the problem is 
that Gaius was to um, the early centuries of the early church what John Smith is to us. It was a very common name. And though there are, there are other occurrences of the name Gaius in the scriptures, we just can't be certain if they're all one person, if they're multiple people, or all different people. So everything that we know for certain about this Gaius is found only in this particular letter. What we do know about him from this letter is that evidently he held a position of influence in one of the churches in Asia Minor. We, we don't know which church it was. We believe that John was probably writing from Ephesus. He had been uh, an elder in the Ephesian church, and so he's probably writing from Ephesus. Missionaries had, had left that he had been um, aware of, had gone to the church where Gaius was, and then had gone back evidently to Gaius where Gaius was serving in his church in Ephesus. Gaius was also a, a not only a prominent man in his church, he was evidently a wealthy man by the way he cared for these who were missionaries. And, and John is writing to thank Gaius for his participation in caring for missionaries who had been sent to him and then that he had sent out. And in the process of making these commendations, John identifies a number of priorities that the church should have towards missions, and we've taken those priorities and we're making them our own commitments in the missionary venture. So what are we committed to as we think about missions? The first thing is given to us in verses 5 and 6, and that is we commit to sending purposefully. We commit to sending purposefully. Notice verse 5. John identifies Gaius. He calls him here the beloved. So he's, he's talking about his kinship, his relationship, his fellowship. They love one another, care for one another. Beloved, he says of, of Gaius, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers. So, um, so these missionaries have come to you, and, and he says in verse 6, they, these missionaries who were strangers when they came to you, have testified to your love before the church. In other words, you, you took care of them in such a way that when they came to us, they bragged about how you cared for them. Then he says in verse 6 also, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. In other words, it is, it is your priority, it is your purpose that should they come back to you or others like them, that you also send them on, on their way. In other words, you have done well to care for them, but there's something more that you need to do in caring for these missionary people. Now, what's interesting is, as John uses a word here, he says, you will do well to send them on their way. That, that word, send them on their way, send them is, is, a, is a word that's a little bit unusual in the New Testament. This particular word is only used uh, nine times in the New Testament. And often, not always, but often, uh, more than half the times, it has the connotation of sending someone with a financial gift. For instance, we see in Titus chapter 3, Titus, or excuse me, Paul writes to Titus, the pastor of Crete, uh, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. That word help is our same word send. And so we want you, Paul says to Titus, we want you to send these two men, Zenos and Apollos, and help them in sending them so that, so that they don't lack anything. Everything they need is given to them. They have exactly what they need financially to go on their way. This little phrase that we find in 3 John is a reminder to us that there is an imperative to send believers on missionary ventures. Sending is our responsibility. Notice that this is an imperative. You're acting, um, acting faithfully. Verse 6, you'll do well to send them. That's, that's your job, Gaius. To send them when they are ready to go and send them in a manner worthy of God. It's an imperative to send believers on missionary ventures. Sending is our responsibility. And sending so that they are ready to go is our responsibility. This is a reminder, my brothers. We've said this multiple times um, over these three weeks. Missions is not optional. 
Missions is necessary, and it is necessary for us, corporately and individually. It is, it is, it is imperative for us to be involved in sending missionaries to their task. Listen, there are, there are only two options. Everyone is either a goer or a sender. Everyone is someone who goes or someone who is sent. There are no other options. Everyone who goes or sends is someone who's obedient. And everyone who does not go and does not send, that is, that is isn't involved in any way in the process of, of equipping for missions, is disobedient and rebellious. There are no other options. You're either a goer or a sender. And which one are you is the question. Our task also, we notice from this text, is not just to send missionaries, it is to send them so they are helped. We want to minister to them, equip them, train them, edify them, and provide for them so that they go well. We want to send them so that they are prepared. Listen, we, we don't send soldiers into battle with squirt guns. We don't send the ninth grade freshman football team to play the Dallas Cowboys. We don't give the chef of a five-star restaurant tuna helper as his only, only ingredient for making meals. And we don't send missionaries who are ill-equipped. We send them so that, so that they are prepared to go to the task. It is, it is our job as a church body to identify missionaries, equip missionaries, train missionaries, provide for missionaries, and then send missionaries on their venture. We, we might say it this way. We have a responsibility to identify, train, and send missionaries. And as a church, we are committed to being intentional in cultivating members who will give themselves to cross-cultural foreign missionary labors. We are committed to, to building people up so that they will be sent with the gospel to other lands. Now, how are we going to do that? There are a lot of different ways that we can do that. Let me just give you a few of them. One, one way that we want to start equipping or continue equipping people for missionary ventures is through things like short-term missionary opportunities. That's sending someone out for somewhere between a week and three months or perhaps even six months on something which they will return. It's not a permanent, it's not a permanent venture, but, but they're going out for some kind of cross-cultural experience with the gospel. And we want to send people on those kind of short-term ventures. So we, we used to do some of these on a very regular basis, but in all honesty, we've, we haven't done that in probably six or eight years. And, and, and gang, that needs to change. And, and I'll just take the responsibility. I'm the elder that's over, over missions. That's my area of responsibility. And that's a ball that I've dropped. And, and that needs to change. And we, we need to be providing opportunities so that people can go in a cross-cultural setting and share the gospel and see God at work and ask the question of themselves, is this something that might need to be permanent in my life where, where I go with the gospel to another place for the advancement of Christ among the nations? So we want to we want to do short term missionary opportunities. We want to do theological training. We want to we want to equip people theologically. So we want to invest in in men who are going and women who are going for advanced training in biblical and theological studies, so that when they go to carry the gospel, that they are well equipped. They understand the gospel. They understand God. They understand the scriptures that they're going to be teaching. That they'll be well equipped to do that. We want to train people through evangelism training and observation. We, we have evangelism locally, missions globally, but part of missions globally is taking the gospel and putting it in a global context. So we, we can't do missions in Granbury, but we can do evangelism in Granbury. And we want to see people equipped with the gospel, trained with the gospel, made more effective in communicating the gospel, and then take that overseas. We do want to do cross-cultural exposure in our local community as well. We, we always say, we're, we, we are saying that um, evangelism is what we do locally. Missions is what we do globally. Um, missions isn't local. Missions is global. But 
We can put ourselves in cross-cultural settings locally. We can, we can go to places where they speak very little English and where their culture is very different from ours, and we can, we can jump into that culture with the purpose of the gospel to be exposed to. And, and do I thrive in a cross-cultural setting? Is this, is this something that I am passionate about? And we want to expose ourselves to more of those kinds of things. We want to help our missionaries who are in training to do biblical character and development. We want purposeful discipleship. We want to, we want to see those who are going on the mission venture grow in Jesus Christ, and we're going to do that through all kinds of ministry opportunities that they have in the local church. And, and we, we also need to add, as with any ministry task, training doesn't end when ministry begins. So we don't say, okay, missionary, we have identified you, we've trained you, we've equipped you, we've provided you, we've sent for you, and now we're done. No, no, no. Once they leave, our commitment to them continues so that we want to continue to provide for them, continue to build into them, continue to train them. In fact, we see that example all through the scriptures. In fact, if you read, um, if you read the New Testament particularly, read books like First and Second Timothy and Titus, books that are typically called the pastoral epistles. Well, better than pastoral epistles, they're really mission epistles because Paul has taken Timothy and he's put him in Ephesus and he has taken Titus and he has put him in Crete and for the advancement of the gospel and the advancement of the churches in those places. So those are really about missions and Paul is writing them to say, you're on this missionary endeavor building churches in a cross-cultural setting. Here's how to do it with more excellence. And so even letters in the New Testament affirm our priority to continue to commit to and build up people once their venture begins. Other letters um, are requests for help. So the book of Romans, where we're, we're studying now um, and have been for some time, the book of Romans is really a missions book. It's a, it's a book that says, uh, I want to go on a missionary venture and I need your help. Will you help support me in my missionary venture? And so we understand also that we are committed to uh, the ongoing privilege of helping missionaries once they are gone. Sometimes that's going to mean periodic evaluations of their ministry work, what they do, their ministry effectiveness, um, how well they're doing what they're doing, and then coming alongside and saying, here's some additional resources we would like to give to you. Here's some, here's some financial resources because you're, you're suffering. Here's some theological resources. Here's some other people that we've come to know that we think you need to know and partner with them so you can be more effective in your ministry there. So we want to continue to to train and develop and nurture and feed our missionaries. So we are committed to sending purposefully. Secondly, we are committed to acting worthily. We are committed to acting worthily. Notice uh, the end of verse 6. Paul says, You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. When, When Gaius sent the missionaries on... He was to do so in a manner that was worthy of God. By that, Paul means he he needed to provide for the missionary evangelists in a way that is consistent with the name and the character of God so that what he does is in parallel to what God does. The, the sense of Paul's, John's statement is these men are servants of God. These men represent God, stand for God. We must care for them in a way that is consistent with the way that God cares for them, in the way that God upholds them and ministers to them. Listen, friends, when we send missionaries, we're not just, we're not just sending people. When we send missionaries, we are doing what God does when He sends missionaries. We often say around here, we want to move people towards Christ's likeness. And by that we mean we want people to act like Jesus Christ acts. We want people to be conformed to the image and character and nature of Christ. What does it mean to be like Christ? In part, it means to send missionaries. This is, this is God. This is one of the things that, that we saw a couple of weeks ago, that God is a mission-sending God. From Genesis chapter 3 through the end of the book of Revelation, God has been about missions, about the proclamation of His name so that people come and embrace Him and hold on to Him for salvation. God 
is the most God-exalting being in the universe. No one cares more about the spread of God's name than God Himself. So when we send people on missionary ventures, we are saying we agree with God that the priority of God's name is utmost of everything that we can do. Now just, just think for just a minute about all the things that the Scriptures say about how God... Um, loves the spread of the fame of His name. For instance, many scriptures talk about God's people being called to declare His name among the nations, not just among ourselves. Now, we're supposed to teach and equip and disciple one another, but it also goes beyond that. We're to go to the nations, and, and we see that calling in numerous passages. For instance, Psalm 9, verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples His deeds. And so the psalmist is there saying, go beyond the nation of Israel and go to the, to the peoples, go to the Gentiles to declare the deeds of God. Psalm 66, 8. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound His praise abroad. 96.3, tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 4, in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. That's not just an Old Testament principle, it's a New Testament principle as well. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This, this is our calling, to take the fame of God's name to the nations. We should also pray for God's name to be exalted among the nations. Listen to the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 67. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us that Your way may be known on the earth, Your salvation among the nations. Let the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for You will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let all the peoples praise You, O God. Let all the peoples praise You. This is a request. God, we want people to come to know the greatness of your name. This was Paul's request as well. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. We we do well to remember that, that this is the Apostle Paul who's writing. This isn't... This isn't someone who's never shared the gospel before. This is, this is the one who has been set apart in a particular way as one who has seen the resurrected Jesus Christ and who has heard and been trained with his gospel message, seen testimony of who Christ is as the Messiah and been set apart as an apostle to be sent with that message. And Paul says, pray for me to be bold. And the inference is, I don't always feel bold. And I need help that you would pray for me that I would speak the truth about who Jesus Christ is. There's a need for us to pray for the advancement of the gospel among the nations. And then we do well to remember as well that God promises that the nations will one day worship Him. Psalm 45, 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. Psalm 111, 6, He has made known to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. Isaiah 11, verse 10. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. 49, 6 of Isaiah. He says, it is too small a thing 
that you should be my, is it, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I also will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And remember the song that we will sing in, in the, the kingdom in Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Listen, God from the beginning to the end is about the exaltation of His name among the nations. We have a priority to go, we have a priority to pray, and we can rest in the promise that God will accomplish what He has set us out to do. Listen, when when we send missionaries, we are valuing what God values. When we send missionaries, we are living for God's glory. When we send missionaries, we are demonstrating that we are worthy of the name that He has given us. When, when Gaius sent and when Gaius gave for missions, it reflected the manner of God's gift to His people. It was sufficient and generous and repeated and joyful. And that should also be our pattern. We send and we give as an expression of our love for Jesus Christ, as, as an expression of our delight in seeing the spread of the gospel to the nations. We have a third commitment. It's given to us in verses 7 and 8, and that is we commit to giving generously. We commit to sending purposefully. We commit to acting worthily. We commit to giving generously. As we think about Gaius, notice the pattern of Gaius's giving. He, he, the first um, explanation of it is given to us in verse 5. Speaking about Gaius, he says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren. In other, you're acting faithfully, he says. When, when you sent out missionaries and when you provided for them, that was an act of faithfulness. Whatever he did... Perhaps he was giving them food and lodging, perhaps financial support. Whatever he did, it was evidence of an outgrowth of his faith in Christ. It was the working out of what he believed about Jesus Christ. And notice that he didn't just do this for family members, but notice he says, especially when they are strangers. In other words, they came to you and they were strangers. You didn't know them. Now, it's a responsibility for everyone to, to give to family members, to support our family, to, to care for those who are under our charge, but, but we also want to give to others as well. And, and, and John says, you, you did lavishly and gave lavishly as an outworking of your faith even to those who were strangers. That was a tremendous demonstration of his love for Christ. His giving also was not just faithful, but his giving was also genuine and affirmed. So notice verse 6, And they have testified to your love before the church. So John sent them out and provided for them, and they evidently ended back up in Ephesus at some point, and, and somewhere perhaps in a, in a public worship service, they stood up and gave testimony to what Gaius had done on their behalf and how they had, how Gaius had cared for him. And he's, and, and John says, they have testified to your love before the church, to the genuineness of your love. It's almost as if the, the guy said, you wouldn't believe how greatly Gaius cared for us and loved us. He really loved us. It's not just an act of love. It wasn't just a fulfillment of a duty. But it was an emotional and heartfelt involvement in caring for their needs. He didn't just, he didn't just give them a gift. Why do you give me the gift? It's my duty. I'm a Christian. I have to. No, but he gave them lavishly as an expression of his love for them, love for Christ. His giving was genuine. And that giving was affirmed. And his giving was not finished. Notice, notice verse 6. In the middle of verse 6, John moves away from a commendation to a little bit of a, a subtlety about, about what he might do. So he says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. When he says, you will do well, it's, it's like making a request in a, in a gentle, 
subtle way. It's like when my wife has said to me on occasion, you know, we're out, we're doing something in the yard and we're working on something and we get the task done and, and I'm thinking, okay, great, task is done. I can go in, I can get cleaned up and, and she'll look at me and say, there's just, just one more thing. Would you mind? And that, that's what John's doing here. Um, Gaius, would you, would you mind considering, it's a very subtle, understated way to say, we appreciate your work, Gaius, but you're not done just quite yet. There are more things that you need to do. There, there, there are other people who are perhaps coming. There, there are these men who might have additional need as they continue to carry out the gospel. There are perhaps others in your church body who are going to have need. And you need to do everything you can to provide for them as they move on in their missionary venture. And the one-time provision from Gaius was not a complete task. And there was more work that was going to be needed. And if we follow his pattern, we're going to recognize the same thing. We're, we're going to recognize that when we send people out, that, that's not the finishing of the task, it's the beginning of the task. And there's, there's more to do, and there's always more to do. And that means, that means, brothers and sisters, we're going to have to think differently about what God has given to us. Now, some of us have been, have been blessed. You know, we, we, we have been given a certain amount of money. And God says that um, if a man doesn't care for his own family, he's, he's worse than an infidel. This is, this is priority. God gives to us so that we can care for our own family members. And that's our privilege and that's our responsibility. I remember, um, I remember when I was a kid and I, I finally figured out how family economics work. And some of you are already laughing. Dad goes out to work. And dad gets a paycheck. And then there are these leeches that suck him and bleed him dry. I was about 10 or 12 years old when I realized I'm a leech. And I'm draining dad. And then a leech is a thing that attaches to your skin and sucks the blood out of you. I don't know who asked that, but I heard that what's a leech. And it get enough of them, and they don't bring life as doctors used to think, but they actually take life. And they'll kill you. Um, but I digress. So I, <laughs> where was, where was I? Um, but that's joy, isn't it? One time I turned from being a leech to being a leech provider. <laughs> I became the source for the leeches. Oh, isn't it a joy? Isn't it a joy? I remember one, of, one time um, one of the girls called and was seeking some financial help when she'd gone off to school. And it was the first time she'd asked. And she said, Dad, I'll never ask again. <laughs> That's right. That's what I did. I said, well, honey, two things. One, um, don't be so short-sighted to think that you, this is going to resolve all your cash flow problems for the rest of your life. You're going to ask again. And two, I never want you to apologize for asking. It's my joy to help you when I can. That's what a dad does. That's why God gives to us, so that we can care for our families. But some of us, when we have cared well for our family, we've had, you know, this is what they take, and we have this much provided for us. There's excess. What do you do with the excess? What you do with the excess is you invest it for eternal purposes. God, God doesn't give us excess so we can waste it on trivialities and frivolities. God gives us excess so we can invest in others. And that is exactly what Gaius did. And friends, that's going to take transformation of the way we think. That we care for our family and then we care for others in the context of the church and, and share with them and send them on missionary tasks. Why, why do we need to do this? Because notice, notice verse 7, they went out for the sake of the name. We, we talked about last, last week about that's the responsibility of the missionary. 
part of the responsibility is they need to be motivated for the sake of Christ's name alone. They, they need to be motivated by the exaltation of Christ. But in doing that, they accepted nothing from the Gentiles. If someone is really motivated for the exaltation of Christ, they're not going to the unbeliever and saying, you need to pay for me to bring the gospel to you. They can't go to the world. They can't go to the Gentiles and say, you owe me something. In fact, there's, there's a supposition, and I think it's probably true, that in Second John and Third John, there were there were people who were saying um, that that unbelievers needed to support them, and they were going to unbelievers in a sense, undermining and selling out their ministry for personal profit and gain. Paul and John says that's that's not on the table. You can't do that. You don't you don't go to Gentiles. You don't go to unbelievers and sell out the ministry so that you can gain. And because of that, he says in verse eight. Therefore, we we ought to support such men. Not just ought, but it's a duty. It's an obligation. It's, there's a moral oughtness to it that we are compelled. We must care for them. And notice that he, he doesn't say, therefore, Gaius, you ought to support such men. But he says, we ought to support such men. So from the Apostle John all the way down, everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ underneath an apostle or anyone else, we ought to support such men. That's our responsibility. That's our duty. We have an obligation. It's, it's, it's not, it's not um, optional. Again, we're either going or we're sending. But we have to be involved in that process. So, so like Gaius, we're committing to financially supporting our missionaries as substantially as possible. And around here, we say that we want to we want to give to our missionaries both intensively and extensively. Intensively, that is, we want to give significantly and generously, and then extensively, we want to give to as many missionaries as we can at an intensive level. Um, and that means that means a couple of things. One, um, our consideration for supporting missionaries will always first be to the missionaries we already already support. So as we think about missions and the expansion of missions, we want to make sure that our people are already cared for and continue to be cared for. So before we add on others, we're going to make sure that our folks are already cared for. That also means that our inclination will always be to fewer missionaries with greater support rather than more missionaries with lesser support. I remember when I was in college uh, 30, 35 years ago, and uh, the church I was at there, it was like, oh, we've got this great missions program, and we support, I don't remember the exact number, but it was over 30. I want to say it's like 32, 33 missionaries. We support 32 missionaries. I'm thinking, that's fabulous. Most of them were supported at $25 a month. I'm thinking, even in 1980, what could you buy for $25 at a significant level? That wasn't paying the rent. That wasn't paying the electric bill. It might buy a couple of meals out. It was nothing. Now, we don't want to be in that, in that boat. We want to help our missionaries at, at a significant level. And that means, rather than spreading wide, we're going to be narrow and deep with our missionaries. And then along with that... Um, our desire is always to increase our missions and evangelism giving proportionate to or greater than the expansion of our annual budget. So as we look at our budget as a church and we're saying if we're growing X percent in the general budget, we want to make sure that missions and evangelism giving is growing proportionate to that. Not always the case, but generally the case. And then along with that, um, missions giving is always going to be a last resort to fixing the budget. So if we're saying we're in a year where we need to cut back, we're going to cut back everywhere we can except for missions. Missions is only the last resort for cutting back in giving. Fourthly, we commit to defending truthfully. We commit to defending truthfully. So Gaius is commended, verses 1 to 8 particularly. Verse 9, John brings up another man, a man named Diotrephes. And and let me just kind of summarize here very quickly. Diotrephes was the exact opposite of Gaius. We, we know nothing else about him except what is written in this letter about him and what a tragic tale he leaves as a, as a legacy. Um, but what we know about Diotrephes is, is that he was, he was one who loved to be first among them. Now, notice the contrast. Verse 7, they, the missionaries, went out for the sake of the name. They want Christ exalted. 
But Diotrephes went out for the sake of his own name. He wanted Diotrephes exalted. So because Diotrephes wanted to be first, it meant that Christ would not be first. Because Diotrephes had to be served, others would be left unserved. Because Diotrephes was made known, Christ would not be made known. Because Diotrephes was selfish in the name of Christ, the nations could assume that Christ was selfish and unserving and ungracious. And even more tragically, he doesn't accept what the Apostle John has to say, one who comes with authority. And even worse than that, notice verse 10, he unjustly accuses John and others with wicked words. That word wicked is used elsewhere in John's letters to speak about the conduct of Satan and the kinds of things that Satan does. And so we might say he was acting devilishly with great evil and with... um, with with a life that is in kind with Satan. And not only satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. So these people came into the church, they needed help, and he refused to help them. But not only did he not help them, it says he forbids those who desire to do so. So some in the body say, 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 Dodgerfees, we need to help these people. Don't you dare help them. That's his priority. And some say, we don't care what you say, we're going to help them anyway. And he evidently had a position of authority in the church. And John says, and he puts them out of the church. He excommunicates them out of the church because their desire to help those who are in need. Everything that Gaius was, Diotrephes wasn't. And what Diotrephes fundamentally was, he was opposed to the truth. He was unwilling to embrace the truth, live for the truth, die for the truth, give for the truth. And so what we want to be, because Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, we, are the, we as the church are the pillar and support of the truth. We want to act similarly to John as he rebuked Diotrephes. We want to protect the truth. We want to stand for the truth. We want to defend the truth. We want to expose and disassociate from all false teachers. And we want to affirm those who teach the true gospel well. And fifthly, we commit to communicating regularly. I find uh, the end of Third John and the end of Second John particularly interesting. Notice he says in verse 13, I had many things to write to you, but I'm not willing to write them to you with pen and ink, for I hope to see you shortly and we will speak face to face. It's almost identical to what he does in Second John, verse 12. I have many things to write to you. I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be full. Two letters um, written at a similar time frame. And um, and one was a condemnation, that's Second John. One is a commendation, an approval, that's Third John. And both of them, he says, I have more to say. I haven't finished talking about this, but, but rather than write it down, I just need to come to you and see you face to face. I need to affirm and correct face to face. In both instances, some things were better left unsaid until they could be said in person. The the individuals that he needed to speak to needed to see his smile, to to feel his embrace and warmth so that they could hear what he had to say. There's a kind of communication that needs to be done personally, warmly, regularly, and in person. And we are similarly committed to missionary communication. We are committed to communicating with you about our missionaries. So you're going to receive regularly, as you do in our newsletters, uh, updates about missionaries when they send us communication. You're going to see every Sunday morning on, a, on the announcement PowerPoint, you're going to see a highlight about one of the missionaries so you can know where they're serving, what they're doing, anything that's updated about them, so that you can be praying for them. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about them in, in worship services. We're going to pray for them in worship services. We pray for them at our elder meetings. And, uh, we, and we are committed not just to communicating to you about our missionaries, but we're committed to communicating with our missionaries as well. And sometimes that means even taking a trip to come alongside and help them with a particular need that they might have. And the goal of all this communication is to foster an attitude that, Paul, that John... Um, speaks of in verse 8 that we are fellow workers with the truth. We have the truth. We're working together. It's not like they're out there and we're over here and we're not a team. No, we are a team. And we are working together on this and we want to communicate that in as many ways and as well as we can. And then lastly, we are committed to praying consistently. We commit to praying consistently. 
We commit to sending purposefully, acting worthily, giving generously, defending truthfully, communicating regularly, praying consistently. Notice verse 2. As he addresses Gaius, he calls him again the beloved. And then he tells how he's been praying for him. I pray on an ongoing basis. I am praying that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. He prays essentially for two things. I'm praying for your prosperity. Now, that can refer very often to material gain and material prosperity. But more likely, John simply means, I'm praying for your life to be fruitful as you pursue your labors. I want you to to prosper in the things that you're doing. And and notice the end of the verse, he says at the end of verse 2, just as your soul prospers. That is, just as you're prospering spiritually, I want you to prosper in in the, in the conduct of your life, in the things that you're doing. So John's concern is that Gaius grows spiritually, develops spiritually, matures spiritually. And he pray, as he prays for his prosperity, I don't think fundamentally he's saying, I'm praying for a really big bank account. I think he's saying, I, I just want your life to be successful. As you stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment, I want your life to be successful. And he says, I want you to be in good health. It's not, a, and it's not an insignificant prayer request at a time when there were no antibiotics and modern, modern medical tools like we have today. Uh, perhaps Gaius had already experienced some health problems, so, so John is quick to, to ask the Lord to sustain his health. That, that means it's, it's legitimate to pray for other people's health. It's legitimate to pray for our missionaries as they go overseas. Lord, they're going to be exposed to all kinds of stuff that they're not exposed to in the United States. Would you, would you keep them safe so that they can... They can carry on their mission venture. But even more than that, this is just a, this is just a timely reminder, verse 2, that, that a healthy church prays for one another. A healthy church prays for its members. members. A healthy missions ministry is a missions ministry that's covered in prayer. So we're committed to, to missionary praying. How can you pray for our missionaries? Well, one, just listen to what they say. Listen to what they say when they stand up here and tell you about their ministry. Listen to what they say in their prayer letters. They'll tell you what their prayer need is. And then, and then pray for those prayer needs. You might also just pray the way John prayed for Gaius. Lord, that you would prosper them, they grow spiritually, and then out of the growth of their spiritual life, that they would have a productive life for your glory. And, and would you keep them safe so they can keep on serving you and carrying forward in the missionary task? You can also pray the way Paul asked the, the uh, believers to pray for him. Just because they're missionaries doesn't mean they are super Christians. Uh, I, I, I giggled this week when I passed a car on the road and, and the bumper sticker said, I'm a Nana. What's your superpower? I, I thought it was funnier than you did, but anyway. <laughs> there, there, there's a sense in which we, we might think someone might have a bumper sticker, I'm a missionary. What's your superpower? As, as, if, as if missionaries are, are extraordinary people. No, they're just... They're just people who have been saved by God's grace. They're sinners saved by God's grace, just like you, just like me. And just like Paul needed help for speaking boldly the gospel as he's in a cross-cultural setting, so we need to pray for them that, that they will be bold in carrying out their task. And then along with that, just pray that you might pray for them the way you might pray for any other believer. Grab one of those prayers that particularly Paul gives, like at the beginning of Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, take one of those prayers and just pray that prayer for them. They're spiritual beings. They're followers of Jesus Christ. They need that just like you do and just like I do. So pray for missions. Well, we've spent now three weeks thinking about missions. What what do we do with these messages? Let me give you four things, four actions that you can take in response to these messages. First of all, recognize that if I am obedient to God, I will either go or send. I cannot do nothing. I must be engaged to do something to spread the fame of God's name among the nations. Can I just say it most simply? If you're going to be obedient to Christ, you need to be doing one of two things. You either need to be packing where you need to buy somebody a suitcase so they can pack. It's that simple. You either need to go 
where you need to send. Two, pray for God to send people from GBC. And then pray for those He has already sent. Um, one of the things that I've been doing, even before I began this series, is, is asking God to raise up more people from our body to send them. And I'm not just saying, I want to send somebody. I'm saying, Lord, would you equip us with some particularly strong believers, well-equipped, and would you send our best people? I want to send someone that when they're gone, we look around and say, that's leaving a massive hole in ministry here. What are we going to do? I want our best to go. I don't want to just send a guy or a gal. I want to send our very best. Would you pray for that? And then, as you think about that, look around the body and identify people who are carrying out gifts and doing things that are related to missions. And then go talk to them and say, hey, have you ever thought about missions? I see your gifting in this area and this area, and I see how you just thrive when we talk about missions and we talk about gospel. And I see God really using you Is there something I can do to help, to equip, to send you? And then begin building into that person. And then fourthly, give generously. You you already do. Raising money for missions has never been an issue around here. You all have loved to give to missions. You, you, You always have. And I would say what Paul said to the Thessalonians, excel still more. So keep giving as generously as you can. I like what Tom Steller has written in the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, in the appendix to that book. Let me just read it as we close. Not every Christian, he writes, is called to be a missionary, but every follower of Christ is called to be a world Christian. A world Christian is someone who is so gripped by the glory of God and the glory of His global purpose that he chooses to align himself with God's mission to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. Everything a world Christian does is with a view of the hallowing of God's name and the coming of God's kingdom among all the peoples of the earth. The burning prayer of the world Christian is, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So whether we are those who send or those who go, Let us glory in the supremacy of God in missions and let us link arms together as we we join the refrain of old, let the nations be glad. Would you bow with me? Oh, Father, would you be gracious to us to be involved at an even greater level in this missionary venture? We... We are grateful for what you have worked in us and through us in missions over the years. And we want to excel still more. We want, we want to be senders and we want to be those who send with effectiveness and building up and equipping and training and discipling even once they're gone. And then, Father, even more than that, we, we desperately want to see people go from our midst. People who have not gone yet. Some have. And we are grateful for them. But we want to send more. Would you be pleased to raise up people, equip them and train them with excellence so that when they go, we will be sending our very best for the proclamation of the name of Christ among the nations. Father, it's a great privilege you have given to us this gospel message. Would you use the gospel message that you have entrusted to us, weak vessels, clay pots, would you use us to spread the news of Christ to our community and to the uttermost parts of the earth so that that we can praise you for what you have done through us and so that the nations can praise you for what you have done through us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.